0: Good morning, Four Corners Church. Praise God for another time to be together. Praise God to get to see a baptism. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9. We are going to be today in verses 13 to 35. Exodus 9, 13 to 35. If you're visiting with us This morning, we are in the famous portion of the Bible known as the Ten Plagues. So, um, sometimes you may come, if you're just visiting, you may come to a gathering of God's people, and there's a a passage that just really seems to be uh, detached from anything you've ever heard about. You just don't know any of the context. And if you're visiting with us this morning, you you don't have really the context either. Uh, But Perhaps you will at least recognize this portion of the Bible. The ten plagues in the book of Exodus. So what is happening? God is rescuing his people. The Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons gave rise to a nation. And that nation became the Israelites, or Israel, God is rescuing this people. That is what is in view as we go through the plagues. And he is doing that by judging Egypt with these ten plagues. This is salvation through judgment. We've talked about that before. God is saving his people through pouring out his judgment. All that we've been reading so far is moving towards this deliverance. Everything is moving towards God's people coming out of Egypt to serve him. That's the end result. That's the purpose. That's what's going on in the plagues. For centuries, they have served Pharaoh as slaves. These blessed people of God, the descendants of Abraham, they have been in servitude to the Egyptian Pharaoh for centuries. But the time has now come For them to leave to serve God alone. And we need to recognize this morning as we're going through this distant passage from long ago. Is that this is what God has done for us. As we think about the Exodus and how it applies to us. And and, and what it means for us. What the implications are for us. We recognize that this is precisely what God has done for us. Through Christ taking our sins upon himself at the cross. There we have judgment. God has liberated us from sin and death so that we become those who worship and serve him alone. So let me read to you from 1 Peter 2, verse 9. This is how Peter describes God's people, the believers, Christians. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, what we see here in Scripture is that salvation comes through judgment and worship comes through salvation. So, what is the end result? What's the purpose of all existence? What is the reason why you are saved here this morning? If you're a Christian, why is that the case? What's the purpose? The purpose is that we may proclaim the excellencies of God. Salvation is for the purpose of worship. That is why we were created. I remember reading... Uh, as John Piper wrote in Let the Nations Be Glad, as he was talking about the purpose for missions. You know, oftentimes we, we have all sorts of things that we, that we say missions are about. But uh, the one thing that, that he focused in on in that book was that missions is for worship. It is for the glory of God. It is for the praise of God on earth. Now, if that doesn't get you motivated for missions, I don't know what will. Salvation Is for the purpose of praise. Last week, we took the fifth and sixth plagues together. We looked at pestilence, disease, and sickness. All Egyptian cattle that were out in the field died. That was the fifth plague. And then all the Egyptians were afflicted with debilitating ulcers. That was the sixth plague. And as I said last week, given the brevity of those two accounts, we took those together in preparation for the one coming this week. The title for the sermon this morning is The Seventh Plague, Hail Like Never Before. In this plague, as we'll see, God sends an unprecedented hailstorm on Egypt. At this point in the plagues, we're nearing the end. We're coming up on the finish line. We are in the last set of three before the final plague. So as I've said before, the plagues come, the first nine, three sets of three, and then the final plague acts as a capstone, and you see the pattern throughout. So with this plague today, the seventh plague, we are entering into the final set. This is the final blow, the final punch, and it's going to culminate in the capstone event of the Passover. Up to this point, we've seen Nile to blood, Frogs everywhere, annoying little bugs, a blanket of flies, dead cattle, debilitating ulcers. And after the hail, we will see locusts and darkness, followed by the death of the firstborn of all of those in Egypt at the time of the Passover. So that's what we're going to spend our time looking at today the hail. So if you would go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Once again, Exodus 9, verses 13 to 35. This is the word of the Lord for his people and the means by which he changes hearts. Beginning in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You'll recognize that from Romans 9, which we just read. Verse 17, You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, About this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. Yahweh is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's or Yahweh's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray. Ask for God's blessing over our time in his word. Our Father in heaven, We bow before you this day. We thank you for another gathering of your people here at Four Corners Church. Lord, you have given birth to this church. You have sustained it. You have protected it. Lord, you continue to do so, and we thank you for your grace. We pray that you would continue to watch over it. Lord, we ask that you would feed it with your word, that we would see you in your glory from your word Lord, that all of the vain conceptions of God, all of the, uh, the, the human-created speculations and imaginations, Lord, that they would be toppled over by the clear understanding of who You are from Your Word. God, we thank You that You have revealed Yourself, not just in nature as You have, but Lord, that You have revealed Yourself in Scripture, that we have Your very words Lord, we humbly come before them now and we pray that you would sanctify your people with your word as Jesus prayed in John 17. Lord, we pray that you would fully equip us, that you would make us ready for every good work, that you would make us like trees planted by streams of water that yield their fruit in their season and whose leaves do not wither. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us by the preaching of Christ, that you would strengthen us by means of your Spirit-inspired word. God, thank you for the time together. We pray that it would not be in vain, that you would enable us, that you would empower us to be instruments in your hands this morning for encouragement for our brothers and sisters. Lord, as Michael prayed earlier, undoubtedly, there is discouragement and even leaning towards despair probably with within our church today as Lord, we think about just what it is to live in a fallen world. There is sorrow and anxiety and feelings of distress, feelings of frustration and fruitlessness. Lord God, would you comfort your people? Would you give us a clear understanding of your power, your ability to do all that we could think or ask that you can do? far beyond what we could think or ask. Father, would we trust you? And would our time together this morning be a means that you use in your hands to strengthen us in trust and strengthen us in holiness, Lord, that we would pursue godliness, which is great gain, that we would turn our backs on being conformed to this world, but that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds. God, that we would be your holy people, not just in, uh, in our identity, Lord, but in our practice, that we would show you to the world that our lives would be evangelistic, both in word and in deed. God, be merciful to us, we pray, and use your word among us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this plague of hail that we've come to this morning, can be broken into three parts. And these are going to be our three points for this morning, if you're a note taker. Just trying to break the text into various parts to understand what's going on here uh, comprehensively. So, three things to look at this morning. First, the warning. Second, the striking. And then third, the pleading. So, for the warning, we'll look at verses 13 to 21. The striking, verses 22 to 26, and then the pleading, or the passage that centers on the pleading, verses 27 to 35. So first, the warning. Let's go back to our verses 13 to 21. Let's read those again. Then the, then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh. And say to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, And on your servants and your people. So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. And you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power. So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold... About this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. As with the first and fourth plagues, here we have another early morning encounter between Moses and Pharaoh. And presumably, although we're not told this here, this happens down by the Nile River. It happens down by the water as the former two. And as we've seen, the pattern continues. In the, the various plagues that we've read, God speaks to Moses. And Moses is to deliver God's word to Pharaoh. God's word goes to Pharaoh and it is, it is binding on Pharaoh. All of the world is under the word of God. All of the world is responsible for obeying the creator's voice. And Moses delivers the word of the creator to Pharaoh. The basic message remains the same. Yahweh commands Pharaoh to let his people go. Pharaoh's refusal brings plagues. God will not relent. God will have his people. And I I think it's just important for us to see, uh, as we've been going through these, we've seen this throughout the plagues, that God possesses his people. It is comforting for us to remember that we belong to God. That God fights for his people. We see this throughout the Old Testament. We see this in the New Testament. God fights for his people. God is with his people. And God owns his people. And we see two sides of this. When we think about how God owns his people or we belong to God. We see the side of it that tells us that God is our Lord. That God is our master. And that we must obey him because we are his bond servants. We are his slaves. We also recognize that because God owns us, we are his very precious possession. These, these two sides of this great truth that God owns us, the, the side that tells us we must submit to his lordship, he is our master, and the side that tells us we are his very special, precious possession. Both of these, of course, intertwined as one. God will have his people. And as we look at these warning verses, we get two big ideas to consider. So here we go. Two big ideas to consider under the warning. We see glory and grace. So first, let's look at glory. What is God up to in the plagues? What is God doing? Well... As we've seen several times already, God is making himself known. That is what God is doing in these plagues. This is what it means, by the way, people of God, this is what it means to glorify God. It is to make God known as he is. You know, that phrase... Uh, let's glorify God, or we want to glorify God, that, is, that has become a bit of a, a, a cliche. It's been, it's been zapped of all of its uh, substance and meaning. And, and we throw that sort of thing around to glorify God. But let's remember what it means to glorify God. It is to make him known, not just vaguely or in general, but is to make God known as he really is, as he reveals himself to be In the Bible, to glorify God, we have to first know Him. We have to be in a relationship with God in order to glorify Him. We have to know about Him. If you are biblically illiterate, if you are biblically ignorant, if you don't know any of the Bible, if you don't read the Bible, and the substance of the Bible is just vaguely held in your mind, how will you glorify God? Because we must make him known as he is. And we don't just invent who God is. We don't just come up with it in our imagination. God is who he reveals himself to be in the Bible. To glorify him, we have to know him. We have to know about him from scripture. And then put him on display before all to see. We cannot hide our light under a bushel. We cannot tuck away our good works, but we we put them out just in our natural living, in how we go about our lives. They are there for people to see, for the glory of God, in our words, in our speech, in the way we hope, and the way that we relate to fearful things, the way we deal with trials and distress, the way we say no to anxiety, The way we flee from being cast down and despairing. These are all the ways we glorify God. We make him known through our words and our deeds. And that's the emphasis that we get here. Once again, God is making himself known. Verse 14, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, or literally on your heart And on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. In other words, the grand finale is coming. With the first of the last set of plagues, God is saying the grand finale is here. We have the final plagues followed by the capstone. It has arrived and God will pierce as deep as Pharaoh's hardened heart. As Walter Kaiser writes... His pride and arrogance will be tossed to the wind as the terrors of these new plagues force him in perplexed and desperate sorrow of soul literally to beg the Israelites to leave his presence immediately. That's what's going to happen. Why? So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. In other words, so that they might understand that all other so-called gods are nothing. Well, guess what? We know that after the middle of the 1400s BC, after Moses and the Israelites left, what did the Egyptians keep on doing? Worshiping their false gods. Elevating exponentially their Pharaoh. They did not listen to God's voice. Despite all ten plagues. Can you imagine being there and seeing these afflictions. All of these ways that God demonstrated that the gods of Egypt were nothing. That Pharaoh was powerless. And yet they went back to their gods. Well that's the heart of sinful man. It's not a problem in apologetics. It is a problem with man's heart. It's not that man remains unconvinced about God. It is that man hates God. It is built into his heart through the fall. He loves self, hates God, suppresses the truth, and turns the created order into a God. But nonetheless, God is revealing That he alone is the incomparable Lord of all. All of these other so-called gods are nothing before him. This idea of God bringing the plagues to make himself known is made even clearer in verses 15 to 16. So look with me there. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. And you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So what's God saying? I could have struck you down by now. I don't need ten plagues. Yahweh did not need ten plagues to bring his people out of Egypt. He needed one one-thousandth of a plague. That's it. He didn't need to do all of this. He could have flicked Pharaoh aside. He could have crushed Egypt in one single blow and brought his people out immediately. But that's not what God did. There is a reason that God has dragged this out for human beings all over the world to read for 3,500 years for Israel to pass along to their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren to spread abroad all over the ancient world throughout Egypt and throughout Canaan and beyond there is a reason that God did not do it immediately there is a reason that God did not just flick pharaoh aside god has had a purpose A purpose for Pharaoh's very existence. And we talked about this in Romans chapter 9. A purpose for his rule. A purpose for his still being around after six plagues. Can you imagine Pharaoh stands up every morning when he encounters Moses with all of this pride. Thinking they haven't struck me yet. And all the while it is only because of God's purposes to glorify himself that Pharaoh has not been utterly squashed. Under the hand of almighty God. And here's the purpose. To show you my power. So that my name may, may be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you see how much God cares about his name? People of God. Do you see God's concern? Do you see what God cares about most? His holy name name. Every detail of our lives should be about magnifying God's name. You know, that's the problem with our Christian lives. That's why we're fumbling along. That's why we're not zealous for the Lord, is because we're really not about magnifying God's name. We're about pursuing our own comfort. We're about satisfying our own desires We're about propping up our own reputations. We're about a whole host of things. Rather than the name of God. This is the purpose for every day you get to wake up. This is the purpose for every breath you get to draw into your two lungs. God's name. To make this God, the God of the Bible, known. That's the only reason you haven't dropped dead. That's the only reason I haven't dropped dead. This is our mission with everything we touch, with every word we speak, with every vocation with which we have been entrusted. It is about the name of God, who he is. This is God's purpose in Exodus and the rest of the Bible and in each and every one of our lives. If you make it about anything else, of course your life's going to be fumbling along. Of course our lives are going to be wrecked. Of course our lives are going to be raked over by all kinds of folly when we make life about anything other than magnifying the name of Yahweh. The second big idea we need to look at here is grace. So we have glory and we have grace. These are the two great G's of Scripture. In fact, you could really sum up all of Scripture under these two great G's, God's glory and God's grace. And as we read here, Pharaoh has been exalting himself against God's people. So God is going to send a plague, very heavy hail, the likes of which has not been seen in Egypt since it was founded. This is 2,000 years since the founding of Egypt, or around 3,500 or 3,200 B.C., all the way down to 1,500, around about that time. Very heavy hail, the likes of which has not been seen in Egypt since it was founded. When? When is God going to bring it? Tomorrow. And we saw this with the fifth plague in chapter 9, verse 5. God gives time for the people to bring their animals in. But here's what I want you to notice here. The Lord takes it to another level. He actually, look at this, He actually issues an invitation to the Egyptians to bring their animals and servants indoors so that they will not be hit by the fail, by the falling hail this is an incredible display of grace did the egyptians deserve this of course not does anybody deserve anything from god of course not did lot deserve to be rescued from sodom No, none of us deserves anything from God. And we get a picture of that here with the grace of God, this incredible display of grace. Verse 19, now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. And of course, some fear the word of the Lord and some don't showing that God's grace is actually at work in some of these Egyptians. Now, we don't know the extent. Uh, Does fear the word of the Lord instead of fear the Lord? Does fear the word of the Lord simply mean they're terrified of the possibility of this calamity? And so they act on it just in case. We don't know. But what I think we can conclude is that God is working in the hearts of some Of these Egyptians. And I think we're meant to understand that as we see the mixed multitude in chapter 12 come out with the Israelites as the Exodus occurs. So not only do we see the grace of God at work in his invitation to these Egyptians, including Pharaoh, to bring in your animals and your servants to avoid the damage of the plague, but we also see it in the fact that some of them actually listen. Glory and grace. That's what God is about. Secondly, this morning we come to the striking in verses 22 to 26. So let's look at those verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven. And Yahweh sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And Yahweh rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Well, here, once again, I want to give us two words to guide us, devastation and protection. So let's look first at devastation. We could sum up this plague by calling it a severe and unprecedented hailstorm. I think that's probably the way we could sum it up. It is a severe and unprecedented hailstorm. It's a storm, it's severe, and it is unprecedented. The hail itself is described in verse 24 as very heavy hail. Not just heavy hail, not just hail, uh, not just heavy hail, but very heavy hail. Hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Nowhere in the history books, nowhere in the records, nowhere in the oral traditions is anything like this, any storm like this to be compared. And to make matters worse, this massive, unprecedented hail is accompanied by loud thunder and fierce lightning striking the earth and flashing back and forth. This is, this is an intense firestorm with pounding, pounding hail and ear-numbing thunder. We get the end result in verse 25. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field, and broke every tree of the field. The impact of this plague is utterly devastating. Destruction to crops and trees throughout all of Egypt. All the Egyptian animals that are left outside are killed. And we know that many of them had died. Most of them had died before in the fifth plague and the pestilence But presumably, there were some who were indoors, or some have even suggested that the Egyptians actually went and bought cattle from the the people of Israel, actually, because they needed to to get the cattle that they had lost. But all Egyptian animals that are left outside are struck. And interestingly, this is the first instance of human death. Notice that. It's not until, by the way, this is the grace of God. This is the grace of God at work. Despite all that Pharaoh had done and all that the Egyptians had done to God's people, it is only here in Plague 7 that we get the taking of human life. This is the grace of God. It reminds me of at the end of Genesis 18 when... Moses, uh, when Abraham is talking with the Lord and he says if there are 40 are and then he goes down all the way to 10. If 10 people are found there in Sodom will you spare the place for the, just the 10? And God says if there are 10 righteous individuals in Sodom I will spare Sodom. This is the grace of God. Seventh plague now we get The first human deaths. Psalm 78 verses 47 to 48 adds color to what happens here in the seventh plague. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. So by the way, that means that this lightning is not just hitting earth. It's also hitting animals. It is striking and perhaps humans as well. Psalm 105 verses 32 to 33 also gives us information about this plague. He gave them hail for rain. Imagine hail coming down with the thickness of rain. A heavy downpour of massive hail. It, it, is, it, it is inescapable. If you're outside, you're dead. You're not making it out. You're not going to get hit and then army crawl your way to your house. It's not happening. If, if you get hit... You're dead. He gave them hell for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. Some have argued that this plague was an attack on the various sky deities of Egypt. And once again, I've talked about this before how you read some things out there and they're just trying to find all these different Egyptian gods to go with every single plague. And that can be overdone on a popular level. But there are, others, uh, there are others in the scholarly community who don't want to see any Egyptian gods in view here, which I think is ridiculous. We have these gods being attacked through the plagues. And in fact, Moses says that himself in Exodus, that it was a, an attack on the gods of Egypt. So here, perhaps, we have the sky deities of Egypt, gods and goddesses like Nut and Shu and Tefnut, and perhaps others. In view as we see this absolute chaos coming by the word of Yahweh in the skies. As it is Moses who lifts up his staff to the skies. And it is Yahweh who brings from the skies all of this devastating fury and power. So we see devastation. We also see protection. Once again, God shields his people. Look at verse 26. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. This storm, as we've seen before, was targeted and selective. While hail is decimating the land of Egypt, the people of Israel dwell in safety. No hail in Goshen. I want to submit to you this morning that this is a picture of final judgment. The difference here between the land of Egypt and the decimation that is happening in the land of Egypt, contrasted with the perfect safety and security of God's people in Goshen, is a picture of final judgment. Psalm one. Verses 5 to 6, it says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Why? Because they'll be blown away. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And before that, he has compared in Psalm 1, uh, the wicked to chaff." That the wind drives away. The image is much like we have here between Egypt and Goshen. The people in Goshen are standing in the open air. They're standing under the sky which the Lord God made. The people in Egypt are cowering in their houses because there's nowhere to stand outside. In the day of final judgment, there will be no houses to which to run, there will be nowhere. To hide, the Lord will bring his wrath on sinners and only on those who are known by him, who are called the righteous, will stand and not perish in the day of judgment. So, how is it this morning? How are we shielded? Because none of us is righteous, none of us fits that description. So, how in the world? Do we avoid the the judgment, the wrath of Almighty God which will come at final judgment as sure as the seventh plague came on Egypt? The answer is given to us simply in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. If you don't have Jesus, you have nothing and you will experience the wrath of God. It is only Jesus Through his experience of God's wrath on the cross that saves sinners. You'll never be good enough to get into heaven. Kids, listen. You'll never please your parents enough to get into heaven. You'll never be able to obey enough commands. You'll never be able to honor them enough. You'll never be able to do enough works. The truth is our hearts are wicked. They're turned in the wrong direction and they need to be healed and renewed by the Spirit of God. And this only happens by the cross of Christ. It only happens as God in His grace calls us to Christ and as we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, with renewed hearts, turn from sin and turn to Christ. We must repent and believe if We are to be saved. We must do as the Thessalonians did. We must turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Without turning, there's no saving. We must turn from sin. And we must put all of our trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see the warning. We see the striking. And then finally this morning we see the pleading. Look at verses 27 to 35. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. Yahweh is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with Yahweh, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to Yahweh. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is Yahweh's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear Yahweh, God, that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But The wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as Yahweh had spoken through Moses. Well, as we've seen before, Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron. Uh, when it becomes too unbearable for him, trying to hold on to as much of his own supposed dignity as he can, he summons Moses and Aaron to speak with him. And what we find here is a remarkable statement of wrongdoing. Verse 27, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Now, there's a couple of things wrong with this statement, just on the surface. So we don't want to draw too much out of this statement. But there's, so there's a couple of things here just on the surface that we need to see, a couple problems. First, Pharaoh says, this time, this time, as though he hasn't been in the wrong all along, As though all along he's been justified in his rejection, his refusal, his oppression, his rebellion, his ignoring of the truth, his rejection of obvious signs, his defiance of the Lord, this time as though he has not wronged or erred before. Also... The way that he refers to I and my people, I think may be suggestive of the fact that Pharaoh views himself on par with Yahweh. There is Pharaoh and his people and there's Yahweh and his people. I I tend to think that that's sort of underlying this. Pharaoh still sees himself very much as a a, a competitor to Yahweh, as, as though he's sort of on par with Yahweh, given Egyptian religion and the status of the Pharaoh. There's Pharaoh and his people and there's Yahweh and his people. No, not even close. Nevertheless, It is remarkable that Pharaoh would be willing to say these things to Moses and Aaron. That he would say these things is incredible. But why is he saying it? Well, it's obvious because he wants Moses to once again plead with God for him. He wants Moses to plead with God to remove the plague. This is pleading for pleading. He is pleading to Moses to plead to God so that the affliction will stop. Verse 28 Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. In other words, Pharaoh is offering to let the people go for good. He's offering to send them on their way. He's acting as though he is done ready to send the people away. If only Moses will get Yahweh to remove this awful, most devastating plague yet, he'll do it. He'll send them on their way. Moses' response is that he'll leave the city and pray on Pharaoh's behalf. And Moses confidently tells Pharaoh that all will cease once he prays. So You may be wondering, why in the world does Moses leave the city? Why doesn't he just do this? Well, it's interesting here. If Moses leaves the city, remember, he's in the presence of Pharaoh. If Moses leaves the city, what's, what's going on out there? The hail. It's still falling. Moses is is going to leave the city. He's going to go outside in the open air. And you can only imagine the hail is pouring down like rain. And it's just splitting over Moses. It's not hitting Moses. Moses knows that he's protected. He can go out into the open air. He can look up at the sky. He will not be struck. And here we are back to this idea of glory. Glory. Verse 29, the thunder will cease and there will be no more hail. Here's the purpose. So that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Who controls the sky? Yahweh. Who controls all of the movements of of clouds and the movements of weather? Yahweh. Who controls all space and time and matter? Yahweh, the God of God. Of the Hebrews, not Pharaoh and not these worthless gods of Egypt, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. All throughout this passage, we get this emphasis on knowing Yahweh and knowing that the gods of Egypt are nothing. But even though Moses is going to do this, he detects a problem. Verse 30 But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear. The Lord God. Now this is really interesting because the way that Moses writes this, the Lord God, Yahweh God. In Hebrew, this is the first time that this has appeared since Genesis 1 to 3. And so scholars debate what's going on here. You know, what what is Moses trying to say? And I think there's something here bringing the reader back to those opening chapters of Genesis. The supremacy of the creator God who is the God over all. You do not yet fear the Lord God. You do not yet fear your God, Pharaoh, in that he is your maker. You do not yet fear the one who created Adam through whom all humanity came upon the earth, including Pharaoh and all other Egyptians. Moses recognizes that pride and hardness of heart are still present. Maybe it's in Pharaoh's tone. Maybe it's in what we discussed earlier with this, this weak confession. Whatever it is, Moses recognizes that the pride is still very much there. Pharaoh and his servants have not bowed the knee to the Lord of all After a side note, explaining which crops were affected by the hail and which had yet to come up, Moses keeps his word, and by the way, that places this plague probably sometime, if you look at the, the growth of these crops, that places this plague sometime February, March time frame, based on when these crops would have been harvested. But after giving this, this side note, Moses keeps his word. He pleads for Pharaoh, and God removes the plague. Just as Moses had said. By contrast, Pharaoh does not keep his word. Look at verses 34 to 35 as we finish the passage. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. You know, all of this is happening according to God's sovereign will. And yet Pharaoh is responsible for his sin. Sin begins and ends this last section, verses 27 to 35. This this idea, this theme of sin And as I've said many times, as we've gone through Romans and gone through Genesis and we've gone through now Exodus, we're seeing the fact that that God is sovereign over all. And we see that God is the active agent in hardening Pharaoh's heart. And yet, in this mysterious way that we cannot understand, Pharaoh is responsible for his sin. The same is true of Joseph's brothers, the same is true of Judas, the same is true of the Israelites. Or Israel at the time of the preaching of the gospel through the apostles. The same was true of Caiaphas and Annas and all of those who put the Lord Christ to death. God is sovereign and yet we are responsible for our sin. He sinned yet again and hardened his And if you read into the beginning of chapter ten, listen to what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, "Go into Pharaoh, for for I have hardened his heart, and the heart of his servants." What? Hold on a second. For all those commentators who try to parse out here, God's doing the hardening of the heart, and here Pharaoh's hardening his own heart, and here it's just passive, and it's not. We're not told. That's ridiculous. Here we are told that Pharaoh is hardening his heart, and in the very next verse it says. I have hardened his heart. These things are woven together throughout. And we do injustice to the word of God when we try to parse them out in that way so as to make God conform to our own sense of fairness and modern sentiments rather than accept God for who he is and who he reveals himself to be in his word. God does not call us to figure everything out. He calls us to trust and obey his word. As we close this morning, I want you to see that Pharaoh's confession and promise is a picture of false repentance. I just want to take a moment and look at Pharaoh as an illustration. An illustration of false repentance. We see a confession of sin and we see a promise to stop sinning. We see a confession of sin. We see a promise to stop sinning and to do rightly. I'm going to give you a quote from Dwayne Garrett, a commentator on Exodus. He says this, that Pharaoh's repentance would remain in a kind of provisional status until he actually acted on his promise to let the people depart. As it turned out, his willingness to do this was ephemeral, It vanished as rapidly as did the hailstorms. Pharaoh's fear of Yahweh lasted only so long as conditions demanded it. Ironically, Jesus would portray this kind of ephemeral repentance with an agricultural metaphor comparing it to grain plants planted either among weeds or in shallow soil. The word goes out, and sometimes it falls on shallow soil, the Lord Jesus teaches us. The parable of the sower, the parable of the soils. And in some soils, it appears as though there has been genuine conversion, genuine, genuine transformation of heart, the likes of which we see in Jeremiah 31, when the new covenant comes and shows up. But in time, with pressure, they fall away. It is ephemeral, planted either among weeds or in shallow soil. And guess what? Bears no fruit. That is not a Christian. A Christian is one who by the power of the Holy Spirit is transformed in the heart Reborn to newness of life. As Paul says in Romans 6, a person who has trusted in the death of Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, it is only Christ's blood that can save us, and has turned from wickedness, has turned from sin to take hold of this Christ. To turn to Christ in faith is to turn away from sin. To the living God, just as we see with the Thessalonians, just as we read in Romans 6, it is to obey the standard of teaching to which we have been committed. We hear the gospel and we submit to Christ as Lord. We trust in Him for the forgiveness of our sins. So let me just ask you this morning to look. Look to Pharaoh, see in Him an illustration. Of phoniness. See in him an illustration. Of self-deception. See in him. An illustration. Of the falsely called Christian. Who is really. No Christian. At all. Let's pray. Father God we thank you. For how you reveal yourself to us so clearly in the Bible. Lord we thank you for. This little portion here of Exodus, chapter 9, about the seventh plague. And all that we find here in this passage, Lord, it's, it's amazing what you reveal here in your word. Lord, we read your word so quickly. And there's a place for that, God, but there's just so much here. We could swim forever in your truth. Lord, would we get in the pool more? Would you convict us? of our neglect of the word of life? Would we heed the words of Jesus when he says to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Would we feed as the sheep of Psalm 23, as the sheep of John 10, would we feed on this nourishing word? For the building up of our lives and the sanctification of our souls would we feed. That we might bear fruit. That we might do those works which you have prepared beforehand before the world began. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you have been with us this morning so far in the service. We pray that you would continue to guide us and and bless us. Lord, we pray for Worth that you would bless him in this, this public profession of what you have done in his heart, Lord. Would you keep him and guide him and use him? Would he desire above all to magnify the name of God? Would he give everything for that purpose? Would he hold nothing back? Would he live for you, for your glory and his good eternally? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.